I am Yatsuk Koroshinsky, FIU Radcliffe's Art and Design Incubator's Tech Conversations host. Welcome back to Radcliffe Art and Design Tech Conversation. Today, our guest is Mikhail Salomon, founder and director of Prism. So welcome to the program, Miki. Hi. Hi, Yasek. It's always good to see you and the team at FIU, my so, alma mater. <laughs> great to have a punter back. So the art week is right around the corner. So what's new in Prism? What are you doing this year? Um, well, this year um, we're doing our second iteration of our virtual um, our digital fair. Um, we felt um, I made the executive decision to um, forego having a physical fair this year and waiting until next year um, when hopefully um, the the concerns about COVID will drop off. Um, I, my understanding is that there is a decline in concern, um, but I just wanted to wait a little bit longer so that we can properly re um, reunite um, um, under under the auspices of the art gods, so to speak. And um, we next year is actually going to be our 10th year anniversary. So we felt, we felt I, I thought next year would be a good time for us to have something, a large activation, um, very similar to the ones that we've done in person in the past. And then um, by next year, we will also have the digital um, component to supplement what we do in person. So, um, we'll have our digital activation this year. Um, we'll have a few in-person panel discussions um, at Red Rooster Miami, which is based in Overtown. Um, and um, uh, we're also going to be uh, working with NFTs this year. So all of the works that will be um, exhibited in the fair will have um, on, at the point of at the at the point of uh, checkout, um, you will you will essentially be buying the artwork, but then also the NFT, which will serve as, for the artwork, which will serve as a certificate of authenticity. Um, and um, this um, mechanism serves as, as a means of supporting the, the resale rights of the artist as the work is resold in the future, which is not, which is not something that's, that's um, a part of the, the status quo um, in the art market. Um, so we're essentially utilizing the blockchain as a means of, I guess, circumventing um, what seems to be a bit of a, a, a ban on art, visual artists receiving resale rights for their work. Um, um, the conventional legal um, laws don't allow artists, visual artists, to uh, receive um, resale uh, royalties for their artwork. So, you know, technology is allowing us to sort of go around that and giving, giving the artist an opportunity to participate in the maturation of value of their work um, and being able to economically take, take advantage of that, which, which I mean, I think is only fair. I mean, I think most other creative industries allow for that. If you're, if you're um, uh, um, in music and, and your work consistently resells, you get a portion of, the, of that, of, of the resales. Uh, if you are in uh, radio and you know your 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 shows in syndication, if it plays, you get a, you get a cut of the replay of your of your uh, of your songs or whatever um, whatever media is is being replayed. Uh, replayed. So I mean, I think I think it only um, seems fair that visual artists should be able to benefit from what is 
you know, I guess their intellectual property, it's work that they created, it has a value when upon initial sale, and then it, it is an appreciable asset, um, artwork. Um, and over time, I mean, there's work now that's selling for millions of dollars, right? And, and unfortunately, the artists never see, <laughs> never see any of that money, which is, which is really unfortunate. You, you, sometimes you'll hear these, these, um, these sad sob stories about artists who don't, who don't have fruitful economic lives because they don't have, you know, access to um, the money um, once it's been sold the first time. Um, so I think this is a really interesting um, turning point um, in the conversation, in, um, in, in the resale conversation in the arts market. And I think technology is providing a very interesting opportunity for us to really we think how um, how even collectors think about artists, how galleries think about artists, how the how whatever whatever pillar you serve in the art market, I think this is giving us a really interesting um, moment for, for us to pause and rethink how we are all contributing. Um, um, and um, honestly, the the reality is the artist is what they're creating, and I hate to put this in this like capitalist framework, but what the artist is providing is a, is a commodity, right? And, um, and, and people benefit from it. And it's unfortunate that they are not, as the, as the, um, as the generators of the commodity are not benefiting, benefiting from it long-term. So how, how can that change? And this, this NFT um, technology or blockchain is, is, is really providing a new way of thinking about how to make sure that artists can benefit long-term from the work they do. Great, um, this, is, this is terrific news, this addition mm -hmm. of NFTs to your own fair, but um, mm -hmm. you started 10 years ago. You, you mentioned mm -hmm. that next year would be the 10th anniversary. So maybe for those of our listeners who are not really familiar with your, with your project, uh, give them a little bit of a history of how you started. Um, so I um, am a graduate of FIU. I, um, I studied architecture there, um, which I think um, really was like the best, probably the best choice I've ever made in my life was deciding to study architecture um, uh, because it just allows for a mental agility that I, I appreciate and, and employ in my daily practice um, and, and thinking, thinking as a businesswoman, thinking about design, thinking about so many things that have actually helped me in, um, in building PRISM. And um, um, I, um, I graduated from um, FIU back in 2011, I believe, yeah, 2011. Um, but now I also teach architecture at University of Miami. Um, so um, I, when I'm teaching my students too, I also explain to them that the tools that they're learning in architecture school are also transferable to many different industries. Um, so while they are, they are learning how to be architects, they are learning um, um, systematic thinking, conceptual thinking, understanding that what they're, what they're doing is learning how to, how to, they're learning design thinking. And that is, um, that is transferable to like any industry, even even um, UX design. If you're if you're into programming, like it's like the way they're thinking now is completely useful and can be 
and can be transferred into that industry as well if that's something that they they want to transition into. Um, it's it's it, it it it's been a very it was a very interesting critical thinking tool um, for me. Um, and um, yeah, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I made that choice. Um, I, think, I think overall the the discipline of of studying architecture gives you this uh, entrepreneurial framework, if you will, right? And I think you follow your instinct and very early realized that uh, there was a big gap on the market here in South Florida and elsewhere. And you created your own project that addressed a lot of issues that were completely overshadowed by by whatever is happening in the art world. And I think you're one of the pioneers in the city who spoke about African African diasporic work and created a proper outlet for this work being seen and not only seen but purchased and uh, collected. So maybe mm-hmm. talk a little bit about you know your efforts, uh, how it started, uh, how did you move from from architecture to 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 the arts mm-hmm. and your entrepreneurial endeavors? Right. Um, so back in um, when I started um, architecture school, I think which was about two thousand and six, one of one of the things we did um, as a um, a way of ending our semesters is we would go to Art Basel and other Basel events. And that was something myself and close friends of mine noticed is that there weren't a lot of a lot of artists of African descent in these spaces. Um, and I was just I just wondered why that was. And you know, as you dig deeper, you you understand um, what the what the possibilities of that of of those omissions may be. Um, but in any event, uh, I was working with other cultural producers here in Miami, um, and. In, in working on, on other projects, I met um, a number of artists who, 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 who I, I still work with to this day, um, who trusted my instincts and trusted my um, ability to execute and project manage. And, um, and then in 2013, after talking to some of my friends in entrepreneurship, um, uh, one of my good friends who is himself, him and his wife are, um, huge supporters of minority entrepreneurs, um, Brian and Candace Burkeen. Um, Brian uh, was uh, one of the first, I guess, I guess mentors that I had who, who, who really, you know, told me I should pursue this um, seriously. And I had other mentors like Tony Randolph and a number of others. I, didn't, I know I'm forgetting people, so please forgive me <laughs> if I've forgotten you. Um, and, I, and I don't mention you here, but Please know that I that you on a daily basis I think about things that you do say to me, um, uh, but uh, another one would be Tracy Robertson Carter, um, and Chris Christopher Carter. Um, um, they made made sure that I I felt confident in making this choice. Um, we I after after a while after about two years of hosting the fair we started getting funding. Um, from the Green Family Foundation um, that's spearheaded by Kimberly Green and Murray um, Charles. Um, and, um, and then Bahia Ramos, who was working at um, Knight Foundation at the time, um, saw potential in, in me and my tenacity. And uh, I, I got my first Knight Foundation grant um, under, under her, um, under her um, tenure at, at the Knight Foundation. So it was a, a, a combination of noticing that there was a gap, um, um, 
speaking with a number of colleagues of mine and uh, who are themselves artists, as well as members of the entrepreneurship and philanthropic ecosystem to galvanize the resources that we needed to make this uh, a, a sustainable endeavor. Um, and I'm thankful <laughs> that it's it's gone on for, for this long. I, you know, initially I was like, oh, it'd just be great. I was sort of just like, I was being experimental, you know, and um, I took my own money and I was like, I think I could do this. And I just sort of threw caution to the wind at the time and, and, and it stuck. And so then wow. as, uh -humm. Yeah, how many artists did you start with? 10 years ago, I remember first iterations at different places around Miami, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, so. So, so Marie Bickles and I, Mm -hmm. um, Marie is now the director of education at PAM, but at the time she was um, doing um, curatorial, she was a curatorial manager at the Little Haiti Cultural Center, and she still is. Um, her and I curated uh, what was a 25 artist, like initial exhibition for PRISM. And then um, beyond that in 2014, um, we did, we hosted the fair at the um, Center for um, oh, the Miami Center for Architecture and Design. Um, uh, and then subsequent years, we basically bounced around for a while until we landed in downtown Miami at the DuPont building, which where we've been hosting our, our fair for the past uh, tw th three years, um, with the exception of last year, which was a digital fair because of COVID. Um, so yeah, we, we started with a 25 person artist um, our 20, 25 artists um, led exhibition. And then it just incrementally grew until we had uh, an artist um, vertical as well as a gallery vertical. We started inviting galleries to participate back in 2018. Um, and we've consistently been working with galleries and um, unrepresented visual artists um, tangentially now for the past uh, three years. Um, so simply you build also talk series, you brought speakers, you brought other outlets of, of again, you know, great kind of cultural uh, conversation around arts to the city that is centered around uh, Black art or African diasporic art. And mm -hmm. I think what fascinates me to see, you know, how your project has grown so much from, from those, like you said, humble first days when you when you had to look for resources around and, uh, and struggle, struggle for spaces, struggle for spaces that were sometimes donated to you, sometimes rented and, and uh, whatever, whatever I had to do. And, mm -hmm. and again, I think I remember last two years uh, coming to, to this really impressive array of activities and hearing people and uh, seeing your bookstore over there, the boutique mm -hmm. shop uh, attached to it with design. So, so maybe talk about your evolution of like, you know, how it started and when it what it is today and like you know and what are your aspirations for the future yeah yeah so uh, you know um i really i really wanted prism to feel um my goal with it every year is that it feels welcoming because another thing is that some of the other um venues that i've visited for internet other trade fairs that i've visited for fine art they oftentimes feel very exclusive and um you know um you can tell that there is an air of elitism. <laughs> it's 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 very um, exclusive. I, I guess that's the right word to use. Um, but I want I want the community to feel 
that collecting art is something that that anyone can do. And I wanted it to feel accessible. Um, it's it's part of the reason why I actually started a fair as well is I wanted to be, I wanted to collect art because I have friends myself who are artists and I've always loved aesthetics and I, and I want, I want it to be a part of, of the home that I build and the legacy that I built for my, myself and my own family. But at the time I was like, oh, you know, uh, five figures for an art piece is, you know, scary, <laughs> you know? Um, so, um, you know, my vision was that we we would create a space where the artists themselves are even accessible. So when you come to PRISM, you know, the artists are literally just walking around and answering questions um, themselves um, to potential clients. And then in addition to that, we, with the support of the Green Family Foundation, we created a, uh, what we call PRISM panels, which is a plenary, uh, built around plenaries where artists and academicians come and talk about their practices. If they have books that they've published, they come and they talk about the books. Um, if they are working on a new body of work, um, some of um, some of the panel um, panels that we've had also have built platforms of their own. Um, uh, there's a young lady from um, the UK named Lisa Anderson. She created a platform called Black British Art. So we had her and she moderated a panel of other um, other folks who are doing work in media as well, like uh, Melissa Hunter Davis with Sugarcane Magazine. Um, we had another panel that was about um, Black institutions. Um, so I was on that panel along with um, Stephanie Cunningham, who runs Museum Hue, um, and um, uh, 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 um, Jeremiah Ojo, who runs um, a, a, an art consulting. Um, agency called uh, Creative Miller, and I think he's since changed the name. Um, but you know, like that, this is Prism is a place where you can come and learn about varying practices within the arts ecosystem. It's not necessarily just for visual arts, but the all the other tangential um, um, uh, Creative ecosystem builders, yeah, mm -hmm. practitioners that help to make this in this ecosystem work. Um, so um, yeah, yeah. The other the other thing that really comes to to be as an important part of the ecosystem, you always uh, function in this ecosystem as a mentor. And like you know, you you mentioned you teach at the university now at the University of Miami. You're uh, working with young architects, but I've seen. On many occasions, when you came to our university and, and to spoke to our art students, when you mm -hmm. uh, interact with interns who are coming to to the fair and working for you, and I think uh, what it's very important that we really educate the new cohort of people who are coming to this uh, creative ecosystem with greater level of sensitivities to the world that they are not necessarily learning about in the art history class, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, um, uh, so I, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, that, um, so Jermaine Barnes, who's also faculty at University of Miami, are recommended me to be, to, to teach at University of Miami, largely because, you know, the faculty there is, has not historically been as diverse. And I, and I think that I think the same could probably be said for most architecture schools across the country is that they fairly, they're, yeah, they're fairly 
the diversity mm-hmm. inclusion and in, in the in the midst of the architecture programs uh, they're not kind of uh, widely accepted right i think you know it's right. still a very 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 white male dominated discipline right absolutely i mean i think i think the stat the statistics is that point point zero three percent of art registered architects are black women um so it's a very i think total i think there's probably about maybe 500 women black women in the entire industry of architecture <laughs> so it's uh it's it's a, it's, it's a lot of work to to be there right right definitely definitely so um i think uh my students are i've, I've noticed um, in both both of the I've only taught two courses, two studio courses since I started teaching last fall and this fall. But they're often surprised when they see me <laughs> as their professor. I can tell when I see when they <laughs> when they see me, they're like, "Oh, you're the teacher." Because I'm the teacher. Um, but uh, it's um, I try my best to um, imbue the education that I'm giving them with. Um, with with core ideas that give them an understanding of how striated are the world we are are in is and how their roles as architects is such that they are supposed to be the bridge builder between communities um uh and th- i mean i think uh, jermaine's work um at um is really important because this particular the curriculum that he's built is built around um us teaching or having them design something for black communities. Um, So they get to understand and learn um, the politics, the policies that have created um, segregated communities, um, has has created gentrification. We talk about those dynamics at the the beginning of of um, of our semesters. Which is which is fantastic because when I was in architecture school, there was never a, a, a course where we discussed those dynamics, and um, and oftentimes I was like, wait a minute, you know, I know that these things exist, but how come we are not talking about them? And why is there why is there not some sort of rubric to address these issues? Because the only way that the world will change is if is is if people like architects, because architects is such a architecture engineering. Um, urban planning is such a critical part of the way we live on a daily basis. These are literally the people who are creating the worlds that we reside in and that they don't understand and that they're not getting the education on how policy is essentially being manipulated to exclude people and to and to, to um, perpetuate um, uh, um, dynamics of supremacy is a problem. So um, we try to, through this course, through the studio course that we teach, uh, um, make sure that our students understand that, that, that these are problems that we need to resolve as architects. Um, so yeah. And I think similar, similar issues really are observed on the, on the kind of forefront of entrepreneurship. And I think I'm sure mm-hmm. that your example to, to our own cohort of fellows who are here at Radcliffe would serve as, as a great kind of aspiration to really understand how you started something in the city, in the city that is very complex on the level of uh, many kind of divisive elements that function here physically and uh, geographically. And you, mm. you started something that uh, really gives them a kind of blueprint to understand that 
those success stories uh, can emerge in, in our own kind of ecosystem. So do you, do you teach entrepreneurship in any level in your, in your architecture practice or through your mentoring uh, around the Prisma? Um, so I, I don't necessarily teach entrepreneurship, but I do. Um, so for instance, the project that they're building this semester, uh, the curriculum that um, Professor Barnes came up with is that they're designing a library and that library has to have a, 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 a paralleling program that sort of reinvigorates the idea of what a library can be. Because as you know, it seems like it, it seems like uh, the library as, as a programmatic element is sort of fledgling. People don't go to libraries as much anymore because you can literally buy, buy your book on, a, on your phone or some digital, um, digital platform. So we are, we are pairing the library program with, with a, another program that can be, um, that can allow the library to live again. And so some of my students have chosen, you know, incubators like business incubators or maker labs and things like that. And so in them deciding to choose that as a program element, I spend time giving them examples of spaces here in Miami or, or abroad that have successfully, that have successful um, models for um, helping other entrepreneurs or helping entrepreneurs build their businesses. Um, there's spaces, there's a really huge one out in San Francisco that a lot of people like called Y Combinator. Although there's, there's, there's um, a controversy around whether they serve a diverse enough group of entrepreneurs. Um, there's another one named for capital. I mean, here in Miami, we have the, um, uh, why am I, Center for Center for um, CIC. I'm forgetting right. the, the, um, what the acronym stands for. Um, we have the CIC here. You know, there was initially before. I think one of the first incubator spaces here in Miami was um, the Lab Miami in Wynwood. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't necessarily teach entrepreneurship, but I just try to give them. The beginnings of, of understanding because they're going to be building a space for entrepreneurs so they should at least understand what entrepreneurs need what they're looking for in a way there's an agency of um, kind of uh, allowing artists to to kind of function within within the kind of creative economy and uh, mm -hmm. you're helping them through through the fair and i mean i remember not long ago i think you're running this workshop at the Paris art museum when you spoke to young collectors to <laughs> Kind of give ideas to people who essentially want to start their own collection, right? And maybe talk a little bit about that because I think that's that's another very important aspect of of your work, where you really create a network of those who who are going to visit studios and meet artists and to think about the work as something that can really fit their own kind of uh, environment, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so to your point, um, we did a workshop with um, Franklin Sermons at um, the Perez Art Museum about, I want to say that was in 2018. I, I think um, so, yeah. Yeah, 2018. And I mean, it was a, it was, it was a packed house. I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, and that is a, um, a testimony for how much people want to know um, or want to learn how to 
collect art and perhaps they feel it's just not, hasn't been um, offered to them in a way that makes them feel com comfortable accessing it. But the questions we we asked were like, how do we become collectors? What what um, what publications should we be reading in order to you know get a good sense of where to begin to get like a one hundred and one understanding of how to do this? Um, you know, I I suggested you know things like um, auction auction houses usually put to, put together catalogs. There is auction houses that specifically focus on African-American art, um, like Swan, Swan Auction House. Um, uh, um, I mean, Artform is, is an interesting um, publication to read as well. Um, Hyperallergic is one of my favorites um, because they have really, really great critical essays. And they often don't just focus on like your, the, the, your usual artists that are famous. They, 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 they focus on you know, you're sort of um, emerging artists who are doing groundbreaking work, um, which which I like. Um, that's that's kind of the, the realm I live in. Um, I want to know who's 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 on the ground doing the grassroots work, um, and that's part of why I really enjoy Hyperallergic as a platform. Um, so yeah, it was it was really um, answering those questions. You know, how do I start? Um, you can start by um, purchasing art at a manageable, uh, manageable cost. I mean, not all work is very expensive. Um, and then in addition to that, if you are looking at something that you really like but costs uh, quite a bit of money, you could also um, negotiate with the gallery or whoever the broker is and, and make payments, make small payments toward just like, just like any, like paying like a credit card bill, you know, you, <laughs> you know, you pay it off as you go. Um, so um, yeah, those were some of the, some of the things that we talked about. You've been very generous with your time. So I think I have maybe time for one more question. So what's next for, for Miki? What's going on? Oh man, there's so much. Um, so we're, we're, we're literally trying to scale PRISM so that it becomes a much larger endeavor. So we're gonna start taking on investors. Um, and uh, we, we, we just acquired a historic house in Opalaka. So um, that's gonna become a residency program for artists. Um, um, I mean, our hope is that we'll hopefully by 2023, we'll have PRISM in multiple locations. Um, and uh, yeah, those are some of the things that are on the on the fire, so to speak. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to your next visit to the incubator. And I know it will have to happen after Basel because probably from now until then, you are going to be swamped yeah. with work. It'll be a lot of sleepless nights for you. But uh, yeah. thank you again for, for your generosity. And uh, I hope you are going to join us soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jasik. <laughs>